0: Well, this evening we are in 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11 is where we are this evening. And I I have, a. as you turn there, I have a verse to share regarding the scripture that we're covering this evening and God's path. This is something that we should always be mindful of as uh, we're always looking for something new, something shiny, something that'll get our attention. And yet this is what the Lord says. Jeremiah 6.16 says, thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. Jeremiah six sixteen. If only Solomon would have considered and held to this word. He could have avoided God's discipline and Israel, he could have saved from having to experience further consequences because of his disregard for God's word, God's command. Tonight, we will learn of Solomon's disregard of God's word, which led to him turning from the Lord and unfortunately seeing at this point the beginning of the, Isra- uh, of the nation of Israel suffering because of the decisions that he had made. It's a very sad turn of events considering how much God had blessed Solomon and the kingdom uh, through him. Uh, he was famous throughout the world. People came from all the nations to come and, and see all the riches that God had blessed Israel with to hear his wisdom. And um, and so it's a very sad turn of events considering all of that. But this goes to show that God is as we've heard, it's interesting, we've heard this uh, repeated several times over the course of the last couple weeks, that God is impartial. He's impartial and applies His word evenly to all. He is a loving God who desires to bless His people. He desires to bless each and every one of us. But He asks this one thing of us, that is that we abide in Him and that we obey Him. Those things that we do that and in that his blessings will come in the form of peace or right standing before him and so much more. But he's not only a loving God, he's also a just God who will and will not hold back discipline. But it's applied with a desire that it will lead people to repent. That means turning from your wicked ways. You know, it's not enough to confess because confession without action is only a worldly sorrow. It's not actual repentance. Repentance actually happens not at the moment you speak your sorrow, but at the moment that you act on that and you turn the other way. Remember that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, and we ask, Lord, that again, as we always do, we desire to hear from you, that you would give us understanding, that you would teach us, Lord, that as we see uh, how it is that Solomon allowed himself, his own heart, to be turned from you, I pray, Lord, that we would take this as 20 hindsight, Lord, so that we may behave in a way That doesn't reflect an undisciplined flesh, but a disciplined life that denies the flesh, denies ourselves. We make the choice to pick up our cross and follow you all the days of our lives, that we may glorify you, that we may please you, and through us you may bless others. And so, Father, we commit this time into your hands, Lord, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. So, 1 Kings chapter 11 and verse 1. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them. Neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. Let's stop there. This first statement sets the tone for the remainder of the chapter of what we'll see this evening. King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Let's take it to the basics of Christianity, the basics of our faith. Back to the book of beginnings in Genesis chapter 2, verses 22 through 25. And also looking forward to the time of Christ when he himself looked back to the basics of marriage. He went back himself to Genesis chapter 2, verses 22 through 25. As he was responding to a question in regards to divorce in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, he answered, naming Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. As Jesus refers back to Genesis and Jesus himself being the word, we are reminded that marriage is between one man and one woman. God makes no provision for the polyamorous relationships outside of marriage, for this would be fornication. Or even less to marry multiple people, polygamy, even if they consent, because that would be built in adultery. Not only did Solomon love many women, but he loved foreign women. So there's a number of errors that he made in regards to these relationships that he gave himself to. He had many wives, he had many concubines. But the other element in this that was wrong was that he took on for himself these foreign wives, these foreign women as wives. He loved them. It is pretty clear that he loved succumbing to the lust of the flesh more than he loved the Lord. Because God's word is clear regarding marriage between one woman and one man. Solomon knew this, but he also made it very clear that the Israelites were not to enter into marriage with foreign women. That is, the Lord had made it abundantly clear. As we know, Solomon's sexual appetite led him to accumulate many women to fulfill his desires. He had no restraint whatsoever. It was an appetite that was uncontrolled, undisciplined, and led him away from the Lord. Uh, This is what we referred to, by the way, in Romans chapter 1, where there is a lust of the flesh that is undisciplined, it's unbridled, it's unrestrained. And when we insist on giving ourselves to the lust of the flesh, he gives us over to those lusts. He gives us over to dishonorable passions. He gives us over to even reprobate minds. That's sad commentary, isn't it? Especially when it pertains to those who insist on doing that which God has very clearly forbidden. Solomon was no different. Again, God applies his word evenly across all mankind, to each and every person. James 4.4 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. If Solomon wanted to build alliances with other nations, which he did, and he used marriage as a means to that end then he was using worldly means and showed that he was more interested in doing things the world's way than God's way. We can manipulate, we can deceive. There's a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death or destruction. I have to say, for being such a wise man, he was very dumb, wouldn't you say? Sometimes we can be so academic and so intellectual and yet have no common sense. It's like, where's the logic? Why can't you see how this all comes together? Why can't you just bring it down to what God has clearly intended it to be? We need to be spiritually disciplined to walk with the Lord. Have you... Have you given yourself to that endeavor, to that pursuit, to be spiritually disciplined? It takes hard work. It takes consistency. It takes reading God's word, knowing God's character, and applying it daily. Do we do it perfectly? Absolutely not. On any given day, throughout the day, we fall so short. And yet, we continue to allow the Lord to do the work of sanctification in our lives, to mold us, to shape us into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We sung the song. He is the potter, we are the clay, right? And that's what he does day in and day out. But we're the ones that need to leave ourselves on the potter's wheel to, for him to shape us and mold us in, into that shape that he wants, that instrument that vessel that will bring him glory. We need to be spiritually disciplined to walk with the Lord in the spirit, in obedience, to bless him, to honor him. Galatians five sixteen and 17 says, but I say walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Let me repeat that because that's really important for us to really get because we cannot excuse why it is that we are continually walking in the flesh when the Lord tells us in Galatians chapter 5 verse 16 this very important thing it's a principle that if we believe it and walk in it we will bless the Lord through it but I say walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. If you find yourself kept from doing the things you want to do, then you need not look any further than Galatians chapter 5 verses 16 and 17 and figure out that the flesh is stopping you from doing the things that you desire to do in the Spirit. It is is as simple as that. I share these things with you this evening as we take a look at these verses because this is the, the exact contrast to Solomon's life. There was no restraint And he even said, there's nothing that I kept from myself. I did it all. And it's all vanity. What is man's all? To fear God and obey his commandments. So here's a man who kept nothing from himself. And it's recorded here that Solomon loved many women. Which was... In direct violation, in direct violation and rejection of what the Lord had said to the people, the nation of Israel. Power sometimes tends to warp one's uh, sense of reality. You get to a certain point and you could start saying, this applies to everyone else but me. You see this often exemplified in our government leaders politicians it applies to everyone else and we'll make these orders and these laws to apply to everyone else but for me i i don't need to abide by this i'm perhaps above it drunk on power solomon ended up desiring power and prestige in the world more than a right standing before the lord Mark 8, 36 and 37 says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for a soul? Well, we can do a whole sermon on just these two verses. But there's more to this, and the consequences that were felt by many for many years to come is also what we need to know about, to know... That our, perhaps if we choose to reject God and his word, can come at a great cost. And he warns us. It says here that Solomon had, in verse 3, 700 wives and 300 concubines. These 300 concubines, in that day it would, be, um, it would be legal to have concubines. It obviously was legal to have multiple wives to practice polygamy. Uh, These were like uh, all the 300 concubines, legal mistresses. And the more children that the king would have, the more secure his kingdom would be to continue his lineage. But 1,000, 1,000 between wives and concubines is what Solomon had. Again, just because something is legal in the world doesn't mean it is right before God. We need to always keep that in mind. But it happened just like God said it would. He warned him. God had warned Solomon just as he warned David, just as he warned the Israelites. He had warned them. And, and yet it happened just in, in the way detailed down to they turned his heart away. Everything. Everything. We can have it all and yet still forget God whose hand was held open for us. Like He gives us everything. Yet remember that we're stewards of whatever it is that God has entrusted to us. It doesn't belong to us. That's why we've got to be very careful. We've got to be reminded often too because we have the same inclination as Solomon had. We get, we get, we get, we get. And, And at first we're like, oh, wow, God, thank you so much. This is what I was waiting for. And at first you could use whatever it is that he's entrusting to you in a wise way, in a discerning way, in a God-honoring way. And at some point, if you do not guard your heart, you can fall into the same trap that Solomon did. And we start just using it for ourselves, doing our own thing. In the midst of it all, we are required to exercise personal discipline. We need to know that temptation is always crouching at the door desiring to destroy us. As the devil will exploit and pervert the good and attempt to turn it into something you worship in the place of God. That thing that God gave to you and entrusted to you, oh, we can form, we can shape it, we can bow down to it, and it can become the very thing that we worship in the place of God. Idolatry. Well, let's continue. Verse four says, 4 says, For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Tamash, the abomination of Moab and for Melech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed To their gods. Talking about a messed up family. What a nightmare. What a nightmare. Listen, I'm sure Solomon had the mental capacity to run circles around anyone who would have attempted to point out his idolatry the wisest man in the world. He could debate anyone, argue, and I'm sure win in a way that we can only imagine. But even though he be wise in the eyes of the world, and he was, and was able to confound the masses, and he did, we need to understand one thing he never fooled god never not for a second first corinthians 125 says for the foolishness of god is wiser than men and the weakness of god is stronger than men first corinthians chapter 3 verses 19 and 20 says for the wisdom of this world is folly with god for it is written he catches the wise in their craftiness and again the lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. You know, the world says that age and experience bring wisdom. I've said it before, experience and age doesn't equal wisdom all the time. No, sometimes age solidifies foolishness in our hearts. Why? Because we reject God and His wisdom. Experience by itself is no source of wisdom. You can experience much but learn little. If you don't know what is right and what is wrong, or you learn how to reject what is right and learn how to be crafty in your wickedness, well, then your experience actually meant nothing whatsoever. Solomon's heart was turned away from God in his old age. So obviously, age has nothing to do with it. As far as wisdom is concerned, he was considered the wisest man in the world, and yet he allowed these women to turn away his heart from the Lord. God did something else here. He made a comparison between David, his father's heart, and Solomon's heart. David's heart was fully given to the Lord. Was he a perfect man? Not, no. Far from it. Solomon's heart was described as not being whole toward God. Uh, a heart that is devoted toward God is is completely given to him. You could say that this describes a man who was riding the fence, half in the world and half given to the Lord. If, If you're half given to the Lord, then you're all in the world. You're either for God or you're against God. What was the difference? You know what the the difference was it it's can be uh, known in, with, in one word. One word. It's the one word that Jesus spoke in his first sermon. Repent. That is so difficult. Like I said at the very beginning, uh, repentance is not simply something that's spoken, but it's an action that follows it. It's an action that is consistent. It's a heart that is completely changed. The heart, the mind has to change. And then the body will follow or your actions will follow. As soon as David was confronted with things, he would be convicted in his heart and he would repent. You see, David was passionate about his relationship with God. And he fought to preserve it. Have you ever confronted someone of their sin, and instead of being convicted and repenting of their sin, they run? It's sad, but I've seen people run. Why? Why? You and I know that God desires that we be reconciled unto Him, that we repent of our sins. David did not run. He would always repent. Why? Because he desired. He pursued this relationship with God and he fought to preserve it. Even if it was at the cost of his own humiliation, time and time again. That was a man whose heart was wholly given to the Lord. Perfect? No. But he knew a perfect God and he, he knew who his Savior was. And he always made it a point to repent of his sins and continually went and pursued the Lord. But Solomon was a different person. He had a different heart. Uh, sometimes we see comparisons like this and, and we ought to think ourselves, you know, which one do I reflect more? Is it David's heart or is it Solomon's heart? Am I more inclined to walk with the world or walk in the word with the Lord. But David did do something that perhaps was a bad example for Solomon. Because David didn't just have one wife either. He had a few, didn't he? But Solomon topped him. He topped them all. If dad had had a, a, a few wives, well, I'll take 700 and... I'll add to that another 300 concubines, and he outdid his father by far there. Not an area where we want to do, outdo our, our parents, right, in the sin that they were so inclined to give themselves to. Solomon enabled his wives' worship of false gods, idolatry. He did. He, he built these shrines. He built up these, these, uh, these high places so that they could go and worship. Um, one wife over here, one wife over there, 10, you're all Ammonites, you go that way. And, you know, he just made sure that they were all taken care of and they were all worshiping their own gods, these idols. But here's what's really bad. Not only did he enable this, not only did he facilitate their worship of their gods but he participated in the worship of their gods. We see this in verses 5 through 8. It says, For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians. It doesn't say that his wives did. It says that he did. And after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chamash, the abomination of Moab, and for Melech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. I'm thinking the, the mount, the east of Jerusalem, what would that be? Would that be the Mount of Olives? Imagine that. This is something that David did not do. He did not participate. He did not facilitate the worship of other gods, idolatry. And how can all this be justified? How can Solomon justify all of this? You know, if a person is still honoring God by serving him, praying to him, encouraging others to believe in him, but then also honoring and serving others, perhaps this is how people attempt to justify other gods in their lives sharing the worship of God with idols is this really what is acceptable well we'll let the bible answer that in second corinthians chapter 6 if you want to hold your place there in first kings 11 and then turn to second corinthians chapter 6 verse 14 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling how often I hear of people trying to toe the line here. Well, you know, Jesus hung out with sinners. Did he really? I mean, you read the scriptures. Did he really like, those were his, his boys, you know, he hung out like at the bar drinking beer and smoking a cigar and having a Bible study? It, like people talk about him as if like he wasn't even God. Like, he tells, as he's praying to the Father, he's praying for you and I. And, and he's praying to the Father, saying, I don't desire that you take him out of the world, but that you would keep him separate in the world. To us, he tells us to be separate from the world. Friendship with, I just read it, James 4.4, friendship with the world is enmity with God. There was a purpose in Jesus' interactions with the world. Didn't he rebuke a lot of people? Didn't he speak the truth? Even though it stung? Even though it brought conviction? Even though it offended? Come out from among them. What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Solomon, what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? How is it that we can commit idolatry and then come and worship the Lord? No, listen. Judgment begins at the house of the Lord. This this is where it's at right here. Jesus is coming soon, and we need to be prepared. The bride needs to be pure. Our lamps need to be filled with oil. We need to be a prepared people. Solomon. We could learn so much from Solomon. We we know that he was the wisest man. He was a blessed man. He was a rich man. He was a popular man. He was a famous man. He was a man that the whole world applauded and came to visit. They wanted to be just like Solomon. And yet he allowed his heart to be turned away from the Lord. The most precious thing that we can have on this earth and in all eternity is a relationship with the Lord. And he gave it away. Because Solomon did all of this without any evidence of repenting, God judged him and executed the consequences he had warned Israel and Solomon of many times. Verse 9, let's continue. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and notice that this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. At this point, the fullness of God's wrath has arrived. The Lord was angry with Solomon because he had met with Solomon two times before. Remember, he had met with him two times before, commanded him not to do what he was doing now, and now comes to him a third time to let him know that, hey, at this point, the kingdom is going to be taken from your servant, it's going to be given to your servant, but then it's going to be torn away from his hand. But I will allow one tribe to be kept by him, For the sake of the promise that I made to David, your father, and for the sake of Jerusalem. The kingdom will now be torn from him through his son. God had told Solomon not to go after other gods. He warned him that if he multiplied women in his life, especially foreign women... That they would turn his heart away from God. Now, one tribe is mentioned here, and we know it to be Judah, but we also know that Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, was part of the southern kingdom. And so there are two views on that one is that it was Judah along with one tribe, or Benjamin was under basically the governance of one tribe, and that was Judah. Either way, God mentions one tribe. That's how he views the southern kingdom. And we'll see how it's torn in the next chapter. Uh, Not only does he prophesy, does he send someone to prophesy of this, but he tells Solomon specifically that this was going to happen. Two times we'll, we'll hear this happen in this chapter. How amazing to me that although there was none richer than Solomon, none more powerful than Solomon, none more famous than Solomon, God, by his word, was able to bring it all to an end. Done. And so it was. There's none more powerful than our God. At his word, it is. And none can change that. You know, of all the sins recorded in Scripture, God takes idolatry the most serious because it has the ability to destroy the wholeness of a covenant. When this sin is committed, God acts swiftly, justly, and redemptively. We can see that in Exodus 32 and through 34, Numbers chapter 20, and throughout the whole book of Judges, over and over and over again. Now, as we go into the rest of the chapter, this is how God begun to tear apart the nation of Israel by raising up adversaries against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite and Rezin from the north country, and Jeroboam, which was a fellow Israelite. Verse 14 says, And the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was of the royal house in Edom. For when David was in Edom and Joab, the commander of the army, went up to bury the slain, he struck down every male in Edom. For Joab and all Israel remained there six months until he had cut off every male in Edom. But Hadad uh, fled to Egypt together with certain Edomites of his father's servants, Hadad still being a little child. They set out from Midian and came to Paran and took men with them from Paran and came to Egypt, to Pharaoh, king of Egypt." who gave him a house and assigned him an allowance of food and gave him land. And Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh, so that he gave him in marriage the sister of his own wife, the sister of Tepenus, the queen, and the sister of Tepenus bore him Genubath, his son, whom Tepenes weaned in Pharaoh's house, and Genubath was in Pharaoh's house among the sons of Pharaoh. But when Hadad heard in Egypt that David slept with his father's, And that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead. Hadad said to Pharaoh, let me depart, that I may go to my own country. But Pharaoh said to him, what have you lacked with me that you are now seeking to go to your own country? And he said to him, only let me depart. So he didn't. The the man who had given him everything, Pharaoh. At this point, vengeance was in his heart. And he wanted to know nothing except to go back to his land hadad the edomite uh, facing god there is no one to come against us for we walk with him but when we turn from him the enemy is before us and we have wandered from the one who is able walking with god he is able walking away from god we are unable we turn we ourselves turn away from the lord now what we see here with Hadad is that he is full of vengeance. Vengeance has filled his heart, and that's all he has before him. It doesn't matter what he's leaving behind. He just wants to go take vengeance on what had happened to his people as Joab had struck them all down. Upon hearing that Joab was dead, he returned and was known to have troubled Solomon. We don't know how. We don't know the details of how it was that Hadad had troubled Solomon all of his days. But we know that when Joab died, he came back to Israel and he troubled Solomon. That's the, the whole thing here is that as Solomon was turning, had turned from the Lord, he found himself faced with opposition. And one was in the form of Hadad the Edomite. That's One. The other one is here in verses 23 through 25. God also raised up an adversary to him, Rezin, the son of Eliada, who had fled from his master, Hadadazer, king of Zobah. And he gathered men about him and became leader of a marauding band after the killing by David. And they went to Damascus and lived there and made him king in Damascus. He was an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon, doing harm as Hadad did. And he loathed Israel and reigned over Syria. Now, here was another man. Just note that both of these were adversaries that God had allowed to be raised up. This was something that the Lord allowed. This was a man from the north country who abhorred Israel and troubled all the days of Israel, all the days of Solomon, Israel, all the people. He was an adversary. He was an enemy. He was an opponent of Israel and Solomon specifically. You know, sometimes when we have persistent adversaries, we may want to ask the Lord to examine our hearts to see if there be any wicked way in us that we may repent of those things and be led by God in the way everlasting Because God may be doing the very same thing in our own lives. I'm going to allow certain adversaries to rise up in your own life so that perhaps you may pay attention, that you may come to your senses, that you may come to your right mind, acknowledge, repent. But we do also know that the enemy is persistent nonetheless. He is our enemy who roams to and fro searching for someone to devour. He certainly is relentless. He is um, his chief job. Job is to, as he is of a reprobate mind himself. He is a liar and the father of lies. He is one who deceives, undermines, destroys, and see, uh, seeks to steal and kill and destroy. He's always searching for someone to devour. We have to know his schemes so that we could identify them and know God's word so that we could defend ourselves from the fiery darts of the enemy. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, it says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. It's it's interesting, and I wanted to share those two verses with you because it's in the midst of suffering, it's in the midst of some difficulty in our lives that the Lord is saying, resist him, be firm in your faith. It's not a time to show weakness. See, when we are weak, he is strong. We may feel weak. We may feel like we're just out of it. But God never is. He's not out of power. He is never out of energy. And he is all-powerful. And how is it that we can resist the temptation of the enemy? How is it that we can uh, really stay alert and know that even in our weakest moments, we can know victory over the temptations of the enemy? Well, by standing firm in our faith. We have to acknowledge that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You know, it's one of those verses I love to go to, and the reason being is because sometimes we can have a woe is me kind of an attitude. Um, Play the victim, nobody knows what I'm going through. No, but God does. And God says, I'm with you. I will never leave you. He says, stand firm in your faith. Make sure that you resist the schemes, the workings of the devil by standing firm in your faith. Don't waver. There are so many others who are dealing with the same things. And Peter says in verse 10, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen And establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. But we need to remember that. Sometimes that constant adversary. Could be the allowance of God. To get our attention. So that we can humble ourselves before. The Lord and confess anything that is revealed. And turn from it. Remember. The key word is repent. Repent. Verse 26, let's continue. <clears throat> it says, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an uh, Ephraimite of Zeradah, a servant of Solomon, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also lifted up his hand against the king. And this was the reason why he lifted up his hand against the king. Solomon built the Milo and closed up the breach of the city of David, his father. The man Jeroboam was very able, and when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he gave him charge over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. Stop there for a moment because this is just a picture of of a fellow Israelite. He's an Ephraimite, and he's described as being a servant of Solomon. Wow, so the other two were from without now we have an adversary that's being raised up from within. From within. We don't know exactly what angered him in the building of the Milo, but in the closing of the breach uh, of the city of David, his father. But what we do know is that there was something that bothered him, something that angered him. Uh, It's thought uh, it's speculation only, but it's from biblical scholars that think, that think that perhaps he was upset because they used forced labor uh, to build the temple. And so because of that, he may have been upset. It doesn't matter. The, the point that we have here, the whole thing that we see here is that an adversary was being raised from within the Israelites themselves, from the nation itself. And it was all because King Solomon had disobeyed the Lord and practiced idolatry. Uh, He allowed his heart to be torn away from the Lord and turned to practice idolatry. Well, Solomon did discern something here, and instead of fighting with this man, he put him in charge of the labor. Jeroboam, you see, was considered a mighty man of valor. And Solomon discerned this. And so Solomon knew that uh, he was a formidable man. And he put him in charge of the labor. He was chief of staff, you could say. He was in charge of, of everyone, all the labor. And he organized it all. He was an able man. Verse 29, let's continue, says, And at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Aisha the Shilonite, found him on the road now Aisha had dressed himself in a new garment and the two of them were alone in the open country then Aisha laid hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into 12 pieces and he said to Jeroboam take for yourself 10 pieces for thus says the Lord the God of Israel behold I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and I and, and will give you 10 tribes But he shall have one tribe, for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Jamash, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites, and they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight and keeping my statutes and my rules as David his father did. Nevertheless... I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of of David my servant whom I chose who kept my commandments and my statutes but I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and will give it to you, 10 tribes yet to his son I will give one tribe that David my servant may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. Aisha the Shilonite was used by the Lord to act out this prophecy. Can you imagine him? He put on a brand new garment and came up to Jeroboam. And as they were out all alone by themselves, he commences to tear this thing apart. Jeroboam, you know, it's one of those situations where you're you're looking at this, you're watching this, and you've got to... I mean, what are you you doing, Aisha? That's a... That's a nice shirt, you know, and you're tearing it up. It's just sometimes when I, when I read this, I think of my own mind, my own, you know, and I think, that would seem quite odd at the moment that he's doing it. But this was something that the Lord had sent him to do. He was acting out a prophecy concerning the tearing apart of the kingdom. The ten tribes will be given to Jeroboam and one tribe to his son, Rehoboam. Not the son of Jeroboam or Aisha, but the son of Solomon. We know that Jeroboam was popular among the people and he may have been stealing the hearts. He he might, might have been in the act of stealing the hearts of the people As he remained in disagreement against King Solomon all his days. Remember that he was an adversary from within that was being raised up. God knowing the heart of Solomon. And and that he he, he, he in his days would allow his heart to be turned away from the Lord. Because remember also that this man Jeroboam was considered a very able man. Who was industrious, diligent, and hardworking, persistent. Untiring, studious, active, determined, driven, And zealous. You can say that this man was a man that we would see today as a man that would put his mind to something and he was unstoppable. There was nothing that was going to stop him from attaining whatever it is that he set to attain, to achieve. But God used this man. He used such a man against Solomon for having turned from him and turned to other gods. Jeroboam will have ten tribes, and Rehoboam will be given one. It's not just Judah, but it's also the tribe of Benjamin. All right, so let's continue and let's uh, begin to wrap up. Verse 37. It says and I will take you and you shall reign over all that your soul desires and you shall be king over Israel and if you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did I will be with you and and will build you a sure house as I built for David and I will give Israel to you and I will afflict the offspring of David because of this but not forever Solomon sought, uh, therefore, to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam arose and fled into Egypt, to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Um, <clears throat> so this is interesting, what the Lord had said to Jeroboam. Um, the Lord spoke to Jeremiah, who's promising, uh, promising him that the Lord would be with him and build him a strong kingdom and would give Israel to him if he he would be obedient to his word, keeping God's statutes and his commandments. But think about this. He also promised uh, David the kingdom, right? And, and of course, he's he's good for his word, and he would follow through with that. And, of course, we see David's seed follow through all the way to the the time of Jesus. Um, But what he was telling Jeroboam is perhaps your kingdom will be parallel to that of King David's kingdom. And yet we'll see how it is that this, of course, didn't come about. In fact, there was talk about idolatry. The northern kingdom was, was, uh, had one wicked king after another, after another, after another. And the people uh, worshipped in, uh, in ways that uh, they shouldn't have been worshipping. But this is what he told Jeroboam. Now, God clearly told Solomon that this would not happen until after Solomon's death. All this, the ripping, the tearing away of the ten kingdoms, all of that was not going to happen until after the death of Solomon, right? You remember how we read that? He told Solomon specifically, it will not happen until after your death. And yet, Solomon still, upon hearing about this, catching wind of what was told to Jeroboam, what he tried to do did he try to do it? He tried to kill Jeroboam. He tried to take matters into his own hands. Perhaps if, if I go and have him killed, then this won't continue on. But God had spoken, and not even Solomon, in all his greatness could stop the Lord from fulfilling what he had spoken. Job 42.2 says, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. We need to always remember that. His God's word, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals, right? And we can talk about all kinds of scripture that God's word, his purpose, cannot be thwarted. The consequences that he warns us of will not be rescinded if we follow through with our disobedience. But yet he wants us to obey, to be blessed, to honor him. Verse 41. Now the rest of the acts of Solomon and all that he did and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the acts of Solomon? And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father and Rehoboam, his son reigned in his place. So, Rehoboam uh, took the throne, assumed the throne after Solomon, his father, had died, but we just got done talking about Jeroboam. So, Jeroboam would rule over the 10 tribes in northern Israel, and here we see it all just being dismantled. Uh, it says here that Solomon reigned for 40 years, and uh, he didn't actually, it wouldn't have been considered a long life. Because uh, it's known that he took uh, the throne, he assumed the throne at the age of about 20. So you can imagine 20, 40, 60, he's six years old, he dies. So not a long life. So because he didn't, he pretty much 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 14, um, <clears throat> he didn't realize that good, ripe old age. It was, it was up to 60, and that is it. Now, here's the question in all of this. And it was asked. It was, it was funny because I was talking with someone earlier and uh, the question was brought up. The question is, did he ever repent? Is there any evidence that he repented? Solomon. He turned his heart from God but we never see any evidence that he had turned back to God. It's thought that perhaps he died in a state of apostasy, having uh, abandoned God, having turned his back on the God who blessed him so richly with wisdom, with wealth, even entrusted to him power and fame. And yet we never see just a true... Part of repentance. We don't see that. We can learn much from Solomon. And that's why I went through and gave you a lot of scripture that tells us that we ought to act in direct contrast to the example that we have in Solomon in this place. Father, we thank you, Lord, for <clears throat> Lord the warnings that you give us. Lord, we desire to be a a pure people, a people who follow you, honor you, glorify you, that are filled by your Spirit and walk accordingly. Lord, remind us, help us to understand how to apply your word. Let us trust in your promises. Let us express a faith And humility before you, our holy and righteous God. So Lord, we confess our sins. And we thank you that you are just and you are righteous, Lord, in that judgment. Lord, for you have already judged our sin and therefore we can come and confess it and know that you can forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness because of the blood that was shed by Jesus Christ on the cross. And so we thank you for that. We now ask you to fill us with your Holy Spirit, empower us and help us to walk with you. In Jesus' name we pray.